Let's open up to 1 Chronicles chapter 22. I especially wanted to bring this teaching to you this morning because we're at a critical juncture in the life of the Bridge Christian Fellowship. We just finished 2 Samuel and we won't be getting into 1 Kings, which is the next book in our walk through the Scripture. We won't be getting there for a couple of three weeks. Um, but I wanted to skip ahead to 1 Chronicles 22 because it actually picks up right where we left off at the, at the end of 2 Samuel. And the timing to me is amazing. As we've seen again and again, the timing of the Lord is just uh, incomparable. If you look at where we've been in four and a half years and how what we were setting at the time tended to match up with where this fellowship has been. It's just incredible. And this is another one of those times where we're in the, on the verge of buying land and building a building and, and doing all that stuff. And the very next story that actually happens in Scripture is First Chronicles 22 where David prepares to build a temple. Let's read through this and uh, pray about it and then we'll talk about it a little bit this morning. First Chronicles 22 verse 1. Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. So David gave orders to gather the foreigners who were in the land of Israel. And he set stone cutters to hew out stones to build the house of God. David prepared large quantities of iron to make the nails for the doors of the gates and for the clamps, and more bronze than could be weighed, and timber of cedar logs beyond number for the Zidonians, the Tyrians, brought large quantities of cedar timber to David. David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious throughout all lands. Therefore now I will make preparations for it. So David made ample preparations before his death. Then he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son will be born to you. (coughs) Excuse me. A son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. For his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. And he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom, over Israel forever. Now, my son, the Lord be with you, that you may be successful, and build the house of the Lord your God, just as he has spoken concerning you. Only the Lord give you discretion and understanding, and give you charge over Israel, so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the ordinances which the Lord commanded Moses concerning Israel. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Now behold, with great pains I have prepared for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold and one million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond weight, for they are in great quantity. Also timber and stone I have prepared, and you may add to them. Moreover, there are many workmen with you, stonecutters and masons of stone and carpenters and all men who are skillful in every kind of work. Of the gold, the silver, and the bronze, and the iron, there is no limit. Arise and work, and may the Lord be with you. David also commanded all the leaders of Israel to help his son Solomon, saying, Is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not given you rest on every side? For he has given the inhabitants of the land into my hand. And the land is subdued before the Lord and before his people. Now, set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Arise, therefore, and build the sanctuary of the Lord God, so that you may bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God into the house that is to be built for the name of the Lord. Fathers, we consider these words and we think about what you spoke through David. So many years ago, 3,000 years ago, Father, we find once again that we can be touched and motivated and moved by what you speak. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you would speak into our hearts. Father, speak beyond human energy levels. Speak into the depths of our spirit that we may truly hear you. Father, I pray as we embark on a new phase in the life of this fellowship that we will be constant in our pursuit of your spirit. That we'll be always listening. 
ready to pause at a moment's notice, never getting ahead of you, but never lagging behind. Father, I pray that you will build this house in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, on May 1st, a new book is coming into bookstores. With the title, The Fall of the Evangelical Nation, The Surprising Crisis Inside the Church. I'm going to pick that one up. It's published by one of the world's largest suppliers of New Age material, Harper One. And the author, Christine Wicker, seems to have something of an affinity for the occult and the paranormal. Her two previous books are Lily Dale, The True Story of the Town That Talks to the Dead, and Not in Kansas Anymore, A Curious Tale of How Magic is Transforming America. Sounds to me like the type of person you want writing a book about the church. She has now taken it upon herself to announce the demise of evangelicalism. This is how the book is being promoted by Harper One. Quote, Evangelical Christianity is dying. The great evangelical movements of today are not a vanguard. They are a remnant unraveling at every edge. Conversions, baptism, membership, retention, participation giving, attendance, religious literacy, cultural influence are all down and dropping. With her trademark vivid and first-hand reporting, Wicker takes us deep inside this crumbling pillar of the religious right, exposing the surprising statistics and details of this unexpected fall. The article I pulled this from goes on to say this author appears to be making some pretty bold statements, and it will be most interesting to see her data. It's also interesting that she chose one Brian McLaren to endorse her book. He writes, written with intensity, passion, and compassion, this is one of the year's truly most important books on the changing face of religion in America. By the way, this same Brian McLaren is the frontrunner of the emerging church movement that we've been talking about recently. McLaren doesn't believe in hell. McLaren doesn't believe in the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, which firmly removes him from the historic definition of an evangelical. Now, I thought it was incredibly ironic when I sat down to study, and I knew I was going to be bringing this particular teaching, and I knew we were going to be talking, in fact, even the title, How to Build a House. How to Build a House for the Lord. I knew this is where we were going. We've had several discussions with our shepherds and, and with our staff just recently about this, and this particular chapter I knew that I wanted to bring. So I sat down Thursday morning, and I had several articles sitting out on my, on my desk, and as I was going through articles and preparing to, to study, knowing where I was going, this, this one was right on the top of the heap. And I thought, how, how interesting that I run across an article about the crumbling of evangelical Christianity while I'm just about to talk to you about building a building. Why waste our time? Is the church enduring or is it crumbling? Is it growing or is it dying? And if it's dying, why bother? In fact, if evangelical Christianity is dying all around us, and we're going to go down with it, then why not just stay in the barn, stay comfortable, make sure the heater works, you know, have our own little thing, and just tuck away from the world. And don't, don't pursue this land. Don't pursue building. Don't pursue moving out and, and, and making more of a noise than you're making right now. Just quietly stay where you are. Most people don't know where you are anyway. I think the statistic is when people are looking to find the Bridge Christian Fellowship, it takes them about a year before they discover where the barn is located. (laughs) Maybe we should just concede and shrink back into our homes and our families in a less offensive and more defensive posture. Well, books like the one I've just mentioned and critics of evangelical Christianity have a basic misunderstanding of the church. And unfortunately, the church across history has occasionally encouraged this misunderstanding. The misunderstanding is this, that the church is about world dominion. That Christianity, like any other movement, call it Islam, or any other movement, is about dominating and pressing out and becoming the great thing and subjugating the world to what we are doing. That Christianity is about conversion for the sake of self-preservation. We've got to get more people in to keep ourselves going here. That evangelism is for the purpose of maintaining membership and that the church demands a powerful place in the world. This is a misunderstanding of why the church is here and what the church is about. The entirety of the crusade misunderstood that. 
when the Crusaders marched across the lands to dominate in the name of Christianity, completely misunderstanding the place of Christianity in the world. You see, Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He didn't say subjugate. He didn't say overpower. He didn't say conquer or dominate. He said, make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, you don't have to be American to be Christian. You can be Iranian. You can be Palestinian. And be a child of Jesus Christ. You can be an Israeli. You can be European. The point is that Christianity, different than any other movement, is about getting into the heart and soul of individual people, bringing them to a relationship with Jesus Christ, not into a great massive church. Hebrews 10.39 says, We are not of those who shrink back to destruction. One of my favorite verses, I've shared it many times. Listen to the last part of it. He says, We are of those who have faith, listen, to the preserving of the soul. That's why we make disciples. The one thing we the church are called to do in making disciples of Jesus Christ is to encourage a faith to the preserving of the soul. So whether a church gets bigger or not is not the point. It's, it's how many souls develop that faith that will preserve them eternally, that will bring people into that relationship with Jesus that will never end. That's what we're about. That's why we meet. That's why we gather. That's the living hope that we talked about last Sunday on Easter. Hope for an eternal future with Jesus Christ, who is our God and our Savior. And by the way, don't forget, when it comes to the building of a church... But Acts 2.47 tells us the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. It doesn't say the programs. It doesn't say the strategies. It doesn't say the plans. It doesn't say the magnificence of the movement of the church. It says the Lord will add to His church daily those who are being saved. That's how the church grows. Day by day as the Lord adds to it. And the vast worldwide dominion, by the way, of the kingdom will only come when the king comes to bring it. Otherwise, that's not my concern. My concern is, does she know Jesus? Does he know Jesus? Are you walking in a relationship with Jesus Christ? That's my first and foremost concern. A couple of verses you'll hear a lot over the next several months. Psalm 127, verse 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for He gives to His beloved, even in His sleep. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. That, by the way, is a fundamental verse, a foundational verse for the bridge. Back in September of 2003, before this church started, when I first heard from the Lord, first heard the call to start a church and to, to see if, if there was others interested in doing so, I went to a conference, a Calvary Pastors Conference at Warm Beach. And the defining message for me of that entire conference was Matthew 16, 18. When Gail Irwin stood up and said, over and over, he said, I will build my church. I will build my church. All of my fears up to that point, over that month of praying and, and wondering, is this really what the Lord wants me to do? And, and how do you start a church? And I don't know if I can do this, Lord. All of my fears immediately were allayed when Irwin said that. Jesus said, I will build my church so we don't have to worry about it. And I went, okay, I can do that. I can do that. I can sit in the front row and watch Jesus build His church. And that's what it's about, gang. So I don't fret over whether or not the church as we know it is crumbling. Because I'm convinced that the church is in good hands. And the church is going to do and accomplish everything that God set out for it to do and accomplish. And when He's done, He's going to pull us out. And we're not going to crumble. We're going to fly. But what about this church, the Bridge Christian Fellowship, this particular part of the church? Are we supposed to build? Should we, as Isaiah prophesied for Israel in Isaiah 54 too, should we enlarge the place of our tent 
and stretch out the curtains of our dwellings? Should we spare not and lengthen our cords and strengthen our pegs? That's what the Lord was telling Isaiah. You need to spread out. It's time to move now. Is that what God's telling us? If the Lord is adding daily to those who are being saved, if the eternal life-saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is remaining forefront on our lips, then gang, we should prepare to grow and grow and grow. It should happen. And I believe this is God's desire for the Bridge Christian Fellowship. So we're buying land. And we're now in the early stages of preparing to build a building here on the north end of Whidbey Island. A building for the use of ministry. A building to be functional. Not a building to be worshipped. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. But I realize at this juncture that some might wince at the notion of land in a building. Some have already told me they're afraid of what we're going to lose. They're afraid of the direction that it could end up taking us. They're afraid of what might end up happening to the bridge. They're afraid the bridge may never be the same. Guess what? It's not going to be the same. It's not the same this year as it was last year. It's not the same right now as it was four years ago when we first started in the living room. I loved, and I've told you this before, I loved meeting in the living room of the Gilmore's house. I loved it. I miss it. There are so many times where I could go back to 20 people sitting in that living room with Hank playing his little acoustic guitar and having Bible study and communion and fellowshipping together. It was wonderful. It was a time unparalleled. Of course, then I woke up this morning feeling lousy but thinking I can't stand not being there. It will always change. It will always be different. Some say we'll lose the appeal of the barn. Well, I, I remind you, the barn is not Jesus. And Jesus never loses his appeal. Some will say, we'll become inwardly focused, not if our focus remains on Jesus. Some say, why build a church? Why not just spread out and meet in our homes? Well, let me answer that. Because I've had some people say, why not just be house churches all over the place? Why do we have to have a central meeting place? Why spend the money and the effort and the time on a building? Don't ever forget that our model for what we do is the Word. We go first to the Word to see how it was done, to see how we are commanded and how we're led, and then we go forward. Acts 2.46. It tells us, and people often go to Acts chapter 2 to talk about house churches, but listen. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread house from house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, the early church, the first century church, the earliest days of the disciples met in each other's homes constantly, eating together, fellowshipping, loving each other, in small groups of intimacy, but they also met in the temple for the purpose of greater worship, for the purpose of listening to the apostles' teaching. For the purpose of larger corporate prayer. There is power in both. And I do not deny the incredible need for small groups and homes. And as the sign says up there, that's the direction we want to go more and more. More people in home groups. But I also do not deny the importance of doing what we're doing this morning right now. And that's gathering in mass as a body to celebrate Christ. To be in His Word together. To pray together and to declare on this end of North Whidbey Island that Jesus Christ is in fact Lord. To shout into the darkness that we gather under the kingdom banner of Jesus and His holy light to be light in the darkness. By the way, I think this is fascinating. I just read this the other day. We have archaeological evidence of a church building built just after the second temple was destroyed in Jerusalem in A.D. 70 using stones from the second temple. It digs all around and underneath and near the temple mount. Grant Jeffries shares this from his book, The New Temple and the Second Coming. It's an interesting book. He says, To say that Israeli authorities were surprised to find a cross-shaped building built with the sacred stones of the temple and located within a hundred feet of the western wall would be an understatement. The implications are fascinating. Even after the destruction of Jerusalem, some of the Jews, including Messianic Jews, the original church, remained in Jerusalem at least until A.D. 135 when they were expelled by the Emperor Hadrian. It is hard to see how this church could have been built so close to the most sacred of Jewish sites, the Western Wall, unless a significant number of Jews had become believers in Jesus Christ. They found it. A cross-shaped building 
made of stones from the second temple, buried underground, right there within 100 feet of the western wall of the temple, signifying that between A.D. 70 and A.D. 135, a church building was built by the original church. That's amazing to me. And again, as Jeffries points out, the Israelis' antiquities uh, authority were blown away by this because no Muslim shrine or building and no Jewish synagogue is ever built in the shape of a cross. This one was. Apparently, these early believers saw the value of both meeting in homes and building a larger house to gather in larger numbers. But the question remains, how do you build a structure without taking your eyes off the Savior? Six to seven years ago, the Lord began speaking to me through a close friend. Some of you know Mike Freeman. He started coming up to me after every time I taught at a previous church where we were attending together. And he began quoting 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 to me over and over and over. He would walk up to me, and I think I've shared this before. He'd just say, preach the word, Rick. Preach the word. I didn't realize at the time that there was something of the prophetic in that message. I don't even know if Mike realized at the time that what he was doing was speaking into my life what my life was supposed to be about. Preach the word, man. Just preach the word. Over and over I heard that. Well, it was interesting. A couple of weeks ago I sat down and had breakfast with Mike and we were talking about the land and the building and what's going on and how we're going forward and, and how to handle all this. And I was expressing to him some of my concerns. Which, which I share with some of you, just about, you know, are we doing the right thing by moving forward and stepping out and doing this? And Mike said, well, you know, I wonder what the Word says about how David and Solomon built the first temple. And it was right back to preach the Word. It was like, oh yeah, yeah, go to the Word and see what the Word says. What can we learn from the Word? Because obviously, God ordained the temple. Obviously, the Lord wanted that to happen, encouraged it to happen, showed them how to do it. Is there something we can learn from it? Remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In fact, keep your, your finger there in 1 Chronicles 22. 2 Samuel chapter 7. When David expressed his desire to build a permanent place for the Ark of the Covenant and for the glory of the Lord to reside. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 1 said it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies that the king said to Nathan the prophet see now I dwell in a house of cedar but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains Nathan said to the king go do all that is in your mind for the Lord is with you skip down to verse 12 it says, when your days are complete, you will lie down with your fathers, and I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David expressed a desire to build a house for God. And God responds by saying, well, Dave, you're not going to do it, but it's going to happen. Because it is within my heart to see that happen as well. And as 2 Samuel closes, go back now to 1 Chronicles 21, or 22. As 2 Samuel closes, you may recall, this is a couple weeks back, that we found David again thinking about the house of the Lord as he purchased the threshing floor of Aruna. Remember that story? All Israel was under a plague. There had been some massive sinning going on, some big problems. And so David goes out and finds out that he needs to offer up sacrifice. So he buys Aruna's threshing floor, but he won't take it for free. Aruna offers it for free. He says, no, no, I will, I will pay full price. He says, I'm not going to take something for free. I'm not going to offer something to the Lord that costs me nothing. So he buys not only the threshing floor, but the surrounding fields all around it. He buys the oxen, and he buys all the things to make sacrifice there. And that's where we pick up in 1 Chronicles 22, in verse 1, where David says, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. David says, this is where we're going to build the temple. This is the place. This is the location. In that first verse, <coughs> in that first verse of 1 Chronicles 22, a word is used there that caught my attention first off. And that word is house. This is the house of the Lord God. Now you tell me you want to build a church, and I kind of go, alright, you know, if we have to. But if you tell me you want to meet in a house, I say, cool. 
And as I just said a moment ago, the idea of meeting in a living room, meeting in a house, that's very appealing to me. Meeting at a church is not as appealing. Isn't it interesting that throughout the Old Testament, the temple was called the house. And it's not about the size of the structure, and it's not about whether it's a steel-framed building or a Victorian house. It's not about whether you're in a barn. The location is not the point. The point is the attitude. The point is the heart. The point is how the people sense each other when they gather together. Do they gather for religion, or do they gather in a house like a family would? Do they gather as a household? The Hebrew word for house here is often used describing the temple. It's bayith, and it means house, household, or family. And that's so important to remember. Because while the temple or a sanctuary implies religious exercise, a house implies family. And there are large families and there are small families, but families care about each other. Families look out for each other. Families, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, they hurt when another one hurts. And they rejoice when another rejoices. Families bear one another's burdens. Families care for each other. So family, for the rest of our time this morning, I want us to just look at this, consider this, think about principles for building a house for the Lord. Not for building a religious thing, but building a house. I'm going to give you seven, I'm going to do them quickly here, seven principles for building a house, for building a home that are apparent in this chapter. And the first one is the Lord, the house of the Lord requires preparation. The house of the Lord requires preparation. Verse 2, David gave orders to gather the foreigners who were in the land of Israel and he set stone cutters to hew out stones and to build the house of God. David prepared large quantities of iron to make the nails for the doors of the gates and the clamps and more bronze than could be weighed and timbers of cedar logs beyond number. The Zidonians and the Tyrians brought large quantities of cedar timber to David. David said, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced. The house that is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent and famous and glorious throughout all lands. Therefore, now I will make preparation for it. So David made ample preparations before his death. The house of the Lord requires preparation. He declares five times in this chapter that he's going to prepare, or he is preparing, or he's going to make preparation for the building of the temple. And as we've shared before, it's called Solomon's temple, but it just as well could be called David's temple because he's the one who drew up the plans. He's the architect. He's the one who drew in all of the, of the resources and the materials for the building of this thing. The last several years of David's life, he didn't fight battles. He prepared for the temple. He brought everything that was needed into that place. Look down at verse 14. He says, Behold, with great pains I have prepared for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold and a million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond weight, for they are in great quantity. Also timber and stone I have prepared, and you may add to them. You don't build on a whim, you prepare. A great house requires great preparation. So what he's talking about, Rick, that we get plans drawn up pretty quickly and that we start amassing wood and steel and stuff for the... No. A great house requires great preparation. And the great preparation for this fellowship is right here. Let us begin preparing for what God is doing in the heart. Let's prepare our minds and our attitudes to be focused on Jesus Christ and none other. Let's be about being on our knees. Now I'm getting ahead of myself here, but let's prepare by seeking the Lord first and foremost in everything that we do. Don't worry about the building and the girders and the, and the, the posts and everything that goes into it. Don't worry about that. Focus instead on the Lord. Jesus said, Matthew 7:24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came. The winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And I'll tell you something, the only way that the church in this world is going to crumble is if it builds itself on the sand instead of on the rock. If it hears the words of Jesus but does not, does not act on them, 
if we ignore the word that we have before us, that's how the church is going to crumble. And so in some ways, Christine Wicker's book may have some accuracy to it because far too many churches are not building on the word of Jesus Christ. Far too many churches are more interested in standing on sand. But if we build on the word, if we stand on the rock, if we are acting on the words that Jesus gives us, then we will stand strong. What is the rock foundation on which the hearer of the word builds? The foundation is very clearly Jesus Christ. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.11 that no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So we build on Christ. We focus on Jesus. If any man, Paul says, builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. We read that verse all the time. I know that. It's apparently very important. (laughs) But the building we build is not an end. I do not look forward to the day when we're all finished and we can stand before the building on Troxel and say, look at what we've accomplished. If we consider that the end, then that day is the day we end as a fellowship. But if we see that as a tool that allows us to continue to forge forward with everything that Jesus is already doing here among us, then that will be a great day. The building is simply a means of building on the foundation of Jesus with the eternal materials of the soul. Because that building, I know this will shock you, that building is going to burn someday. Just like this barn. Material things are going to get wiped out. They will be toast. And not toast for eating. But it takes a great preparation, a preparation of the heart to be about the things of the Lord. Notice David's heart, verse 5. David says, My son Solomon is young and inexperienced, but the house that is to be built for the Lord shall be exceedingly magnificent, famous, glorious throughout all lands. Therefore now I will make preparation for it. Why did it have to be so glorious? So the people could go up to David and say, David, you're a great architect? No, David was going to be dead. No one was going to be able to honor David for the building of that building. He wouldn't receive honor. He knew that. So why did he want it to be exceedingly famous and glorious? Because he loved the Lord. Because he wanted the Lord to have this place that honored him, that brought focus to him. By the way, in verse 14 it says there was 100,000 talents of gold set aside by David. That's the equivalent of 3,000 tons of gold. Based on today's gold standard, I actually looked this up. Yesterday it was $932 an ounce. It would equal 3,000 tons, more than $82 billion just in the gold David set aside for this temple. $82 billion, gang. It's said by the rabbis and historians, Josephus wrote that when you walked into the temple, there wasn't anything that was not covered with gold. The floors, the walls, the beams. It was absolutely immaculate. Stunning, shocking, glorious. Why would David do such a thing? Why all the extravagance? Because David had a heart to glorify God. How do you know that? Read the Psalms. Look at his life. If there was any one thing David understood and wanted, it was to glorify and bring honor and glory to God. He wanted people to walk into the temple of the Lord and just go, Wow! Praise God. Not praise David. Not, hey, look at Solomon. But praise God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. And listen to this. The second thing to know, the house of the Lord is not, not only a place that requires preparation, but the house of the Lord is a house of praise. It is a house of praise. And by the way, I saw gold all over the floors and the walls and the beams in this barn this morning when I walked in because the praise was so beautiful. And that's what the house of the Lord is to be, a house of praise. 
When people come together, it's a place where they do so in awe of the Father. And it doesn't mean that we're supposed to build a crystal cathedral. It's already been done. <laughs> it doesn't mean we're supposed to have stained glass and spires and opulence. Again, the issue is the heart. And please hear me. We need to come back to the heart again and again and again as we go forward in building. It's got to be a heart issue for us. David wanted the house of the Lord to be glorious unto the Lord. Jesus said, Matthew 5.14, You're the light of the world. Which was, by the way, a place originally given for Israel. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's become such an important verse to me. Let your life, your, your, your life shine in such a way that people will see your good works and not honor you and not think you're all that and not be impressed by you but glorify God. Which means we're to seek ministry and service in such a way that people don't even see us doing it but God gets honored for it. And the best thing I've ever heard about this barn is when people have entered and said I felt the presence of the Lord before I even walked in. We've had a lot of people say that. Oh, because worship was going on, right? No, I'm talking before worship was even being played. People walked in and said, I knew before a note was sung that God was here. See, that's, that's what we're looking for. A house of praise. No building of man must ever distract from the glory of the Lord. Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple. He was going away. When his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him, and he said, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And I think, come on, Jesus, why be a wet blanket? They're just excited about the temple. They're walking along and they're going, look at this. And I've been there. You know, when, when you go to Jerusalem, you even look at the Temple Mount. It's fascinating. It's overwhelming to stand before the Western Wall. And, and with our group that we went with last time, we're all looking at it going, isn't that just amazing? I and mean, we're all impressed. And that's all the apostles were doing. They were just impressed by what they saw. And saying, Jesus, isn't it great? Isn't this house beautiful? Isn't it glorious? And Jesus says, you know what? This house is not the issue. This house is going to get wiped out, guys. It's not going to be here. See, the problem is the second temple, which was Herod's temple, that he rebuilt, and it was opulence, and it was more magnificent than Solomon's temple was before it. It was so amazing that it attracted all the attention to itself. You see, it wasn't about bringing glory to God. Herod retrofitted that temple to bring glory to himself. He was a megalomaniac. He wanted all the glory and honor for himself. Whatever we build must be a place that brings praise to God's name. Not because of the house, but because of the heart. Verse 6 in chapter 22. Going on, says that he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. David said to Solomon, My son, I intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God, but the word of the Lord came to me, saying, You shed much blood. See, we find out now why David can't build the house. He's a warrior. There's blood on his hands. And God says in verse 9, Behold, a son will be born to you who will be a man of rest, and I will give him rest from all his enemies on every side. His name shall be Shloma. Solomon. Shalom. Peace. His name means peace. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. Third thing to note, the house of the Lord is built in peace. The house of the Lord must be built in peace. Solomon was named peace because he was born after a penitent David had made peace with his God. Remember the whole story of David and Bathsheba? Where David sinned and when it came out, that child that was the, the product of David's sin, that child ended up dying. But the Lord blessed, amazingly, gracefully blessed David and Bathsheba again and they had another son. And his name was Solomon. At a time when David had repented to the Lord and confessed to the Lord and there was peace between him and the Lord. But there's something else interesting about the way the temple was built. It was built in peace. Not just by a man of peace, but in absolute peace. The entirety of the temple was, was built this way. The temple stones, were told, were quarried from three places in Israel. And the quarries were loud and difficult. There was a lot of sweat, a lot of hard work done there. Although the rabbis tell us that in the entire building of the temple across seven years, not one single person died, which is interesting. 
But these temple stones were quarried from these three places in Jerusalem. The closest was over a mile away. Some of the foundation stones weighed as much as a thousand tons each. Some of those foundation stones, you can see, if you go down to the western wall and into what they call the rabbi's tunnel, and you follow it down, you get down to the bottom where you see foundation stones that were set by Solomon himself. And these stones are, at some places, 46 feet long, 26 feet high, weighing as much as a thousand tons. And what's interesting is we don't have the technology today to move rocks like that. We don't have cranes that can do it. We don't have helicopters that can... We we don't know how they did it. They are larger by far than any of the stones used in the pyramids. We look at this and say, how was it done? Today's ideas don't match. We can't do it. We don't have the smarts that they had then, that Solomon had then. How did they move it that entire mile or further from the quarry to the Temple Mount to build? No one has a clue. All we know is that they did, and we know something else that's very interesting about this. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7 says, The house, while it was being built, was built of stone prepared at the quarry, and there was neither hammer nor axe nor any iron tool heard in the house while it was being built. Which means that they constructed these stones to exact specification, somehow got them to the Temple Mount, and when they got them there, they were put together silently. Amazing. In peace. They slid right together. And even today, when you go into that western wall tunnel, the stones fit so precisely together, you can't even get a razor blade in between them. It was built in peace and quiet. The work, the sweat, the noise, that all happened away from the actual building. Now, now we've made application of this before. I'm going to throw this in for you. That's life. That's life. The work, the blood, the sweat, the difficulty, the quarry. We're in the quarry right now. Life is the quarry. But that day is coming when we will come to the temple. We will come to the heavenly Mount Zion. And when we do, we will slide in in perfect peace. In perfect rest. It's going to be an awesome day. But the house was built in peace. Far too many church buildings are built with blood, sweat, and tears. Far too many church buildings hurt people in the process of being built. One of the things that the shepherds prayed about was how to go about this in such a way that the body remains protected and whole and healthy. And that people don't get worn out on building, 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 on finance, finance, finance. Okay, guys, you saw where we're at with the building. We need more money. We're going to put a big thermometer up here with a little red thing. And the higher it gets, the more money we'll have. We're not going to do that. <laughs> that's between you and the Lord I fully assume that if the Lord wants us to build in the same way that he's provided for the land he's going to provide for the building which doesn't mean that we just sit back and do nothing it means that we give as we're called to give and as we're led to give and as we're excited and enthused to give not as we're pressured and forced you see that's, that's quarry stuff this house must be built in peace. The statistic of 85% of pastors leaving after building projects are completed doesn't scare me in the least because we're just not going to build that way. And you can't get rid of me that easily. First Chronicles 22, verse 12. Now this is interesting. As we get down to the end of it here, David says some things that are curious to me. He says, Only the Lord give you discretion and understanding. And give you charge over Israel so that you may keep the law of the Lord your God. And then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the ordinances which the Lord commanded Moses concerning Israel. And then he says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed. Why? If I was Solomon, I'd say, Dad, why do I have to be strong and courageous? You said this is going to be built in time of peace. Uh, it's going to be a peaceful time. I'm going to have rest from all my enemies. Why in the world would I need to be strong and courageous? Number four in your notes. I don't know if you've gotten all three. Yeah, I think so. Preparation. Praise. Peace. This next one starts with a P. The house of the Lord requires perseverance. It requires perseverance. Listen to these words again. Discretion. Understanding. Strength, courage, and David said, do not fear or be dismayed. Why would he say this? Because building a house of the Lord always attracts enemy reprisal. Not from outside, 
Because remember, Solomon would have been at rest from all his enemies, but often from inside, the enemy will infiltrate, which is why church buildings cause so much church heartache. Because building a house for the Lord always invites and attracts enemy reprisal. Here's something to chew on, gang. Satan would love it if we were limited to this barn and a few houses. I truly believe we would please Satan if we just stayed put. Every step of the way, gang, the question we have to ask is what is our intention for the Lord? How serious are we about being light in a dark place? Barb, you remember this. We talked about this early on when the bridge first started. We said, you know, maybe we're supposed to be here simply because God wants light in this area. That He wants light to to push out the darkness in this part of the island. So the darkness gang wants to be here. The darkness is pretty thick. I'll, I'll tell you more about this in just a second. But the question we have to ask is how far are we willing to go? Are we willing to persevere to the call of the Lord Jesus Christ on our lives? Are we willing to go forward? Even if that means sacrifice for myself. And I'm not asking, I'm, you know, again, pressuring for personal sacrifice. But what are you willing to do for Jesus in your life? How far are you willing to go for Him in your life? What are you willing to do? To be sure that the gospel is preached. To be sure that people's lives are saved. If the bridge is only about meeting and feeding our needs, I'm out. But if it's about moving light into the darkness, always building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, man, count me in, that's a life worth living. Whitby News Times, March 26, 2008. My research assistant, Sharon, put this article on my desk. She always does that. A lot of the things that I share article-wise, she finds for me. This one was entitled, Circle of Friends. New group raises funds to give island youth support. Gilbert, that's something you'd probably be excited about. Cool. Youth support. Support for teenagers and and adolescents on our island. I mean, that's that's a great concern to us. We want to make sure and help them out. We we want to to do everything we can for, for our teens, for our youth. Oh, and by the way, side note on this. We are praying about youth ministry at the bridge and about the possibility. In fact, I've been talking with John Quick, who's the North, uh, North Island's um, Young Life director. And we're talking about a partnership with Young Life that allows us to, to actually hire a youth pastor here, but also who would oversee Young Life in Oak Harbor, which is kind of, you know, taking care of kids here, but also spreading out. It's kind of a kingdom mentality, and that really excites me. But I want you all to know this, that if you know of anybody, give them my name or give their name to me. We, we have prayed and, and have desired that the Lord would raise up from within this fellowship people to serve. And, and specifically, if you know someone who comes to the bridge that I'm unaware of, who would be interested in youth ministry as a, as a profession, then talk to me about that. But I want to tell you about this circle of friends, this group that's raising funds to give island support. This is out of, again, Whidbey News Times, March 26th. Since last August, the 20 or so members of the Whidbey Giving Circle have met to talk about the needs of the island's youth. The Giving Circle hopes to work to show support for and give monetary means to organizations to create programs and forums to understand the issues faced by young lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and questioning adolescents. It's a question, quote, of to what extent a community is aware of its issues and the differences in lifestyles, says Gene Singer, Giving Circle member. Our goal isn't to segregate the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community. It's to join the fuller community of the island. And so this group, the Giving Circle with the island, was promoted. And you read through the article and it just sounds like such a good thing. And you might ask me, well, Rick... I get uncomfortable when you go here because I know it's going to sound judgmental. Sorry. (laughs) Some say, don't you think love and tolerance are important, especially for Christians? And my answer to that is, not at the cost of young lives. I read this article and I was absolutely incensed. Not because I don't have compassion for young people who are struggling with sexual issues, not sure of their sexuality. And the reality is, gang, most young people do struggle with sexual things. Trying to figure out what, who they are, not what they are, 
But you throw into the mix of adolescent sexual uh, confusion, throw into the mix the option and the opportunity for bisexual and homosexual relationships, and it just confuses it all the more. I was talking with a friend just recently about the heartache that, that, that he had about the fact that kids will jump off the bridge. And about the fact that last year one young man walked all the way from Oak Harbor, walked all the way up to the bridge and jumped off. How long a walk is that? How much time did he have to think about what he was going to do before? I mean, how bad would life have to be to get to that point? Here's the deal, gang. If we're supporting and encouraging gay, lesbian, you know, bisexual, transgender kids, if we're funneling money to support and encourage that, we might as well be pushing them off the bridge because that's where we're sending them. It's the same thing. There is darkness on this island. There is darkness all around us. And there's only one thing that causes the darkness to flee. And you know what it is. Light. And it's simple. Flip on the switch and the darkness runs to the corners. Turn on the switch and the darkness tries to hide. Why would you build a church building in the middle of nowhere? I mean, we're not even down in Oak Harbor or over in Anacortes. We're in the middle in this rural area. Why put a church there? It's not for us. It's to push back against the darkness. It's to say, no, we're not going to be a part on this island of things like this giving circle. Instead, we're going to speak the truth in love. We're going to tell kids, Jesus loves you passionately. He cares about you. He created you for wonderful things. And it's not for a life fraught with difficulty in the homosexual lifestyle. Which, by the way, the average lifespan of a homosexual today is about 45 it's about death. And the message of Jesus Christ is all about life. And so the house of the Lord requires perseverance. This group, the gaming circle, what they fail to understand is that they are paving the road for a hellish life for these kids. They are not helping these kids. They're just hurting them. I think Satan must howl at well-meaning organizations who play directly into his hot little hands which is what this group is doing. The darkness always shrinks back in the presence of persevering light. In verse 2 of chapter 22, David gave orders to gather the foreigners who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to hew out stones to build the house of God. And then in verse 15, Moreover, he said, There are many workmen with you, stone cutters and masons of stone and carpenters and all men who are skillful in every kind of work. What's interesting to me is that there are two kinds of people involved here. Number five in the list here, the house of the Lord involved people in the building. But both foreigners and family were involved. Both foreigners and family. Jews and Gentiles. Insiders and outsiders. And it's interesting to note Jews in Israel today who are busily making preparations for a third temple, and those preparations are well underway, are welcoming the support and help of Gentiles specifically of evangelical Christians. And they have no problem with it whatsoever because this passage indicates that Gentiles helped in the building of the temple. In the same way, the house of the Lord will involve people in the building. The, the house for the Bridge Christian Fellowship will not just be built by us. It's going to be built by people who have nothing to do literally with this church. It's going to be built by non-Christian people who will be involved in it. The right people for the right job at the right time according to the leading of the Lord. And by the way, my hope is that if we have some subcontractors who are absolute atheists or heathens working on this building, that through their involvement with us, they will find Jesus Christ as well. Some churches are built, again, on the blood, sweat, and tears of its body, the backbreaking labor, calling up and going, look, dude, <laughs> Sean, you said you were going to be down here today to work. And Sean says, well, yeah, I know, but I've got some boats I'm working on right now. I, I'm sorry I can't get down. There. Yeah, but you're on the schedule, man. Next thing you know, Sean's not here anymore because there's a rift in relationship because we've been pushing and fighting. The, the house of the Lord is going to be built by people, in and out those involved in this fellowship and those who aren't. But we are going to seek the involvement of foreigners who know what they're doing, who know how to build. I don't know who's going to build or what the plans are or all that. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm kind of staying out of that process as much as possible so that I can do what I'm supposed to be doing here. But I, it just, you know what? Involving the world in this building is okay if our hearts are in the right place.
if our hearts are focused on Jesus, if we continue to be in prayer and be before the Lord and have our focus be on what He's doing here, not on what what He's building. So the house of the Lord involves people in the building. And verse 19, finally we get down to the end here. Verse 19 tells us now, Set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Arise, therefore, and build the sanctuary of the Lord God, so that you may bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God into the house that is to be built from the name of the Lord. Jim pointed this out at our shepherds meeting. I thought this was so cool. Notice the use of the word and the placement of the word arise in verse 19. Set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Arise, therefore, and build the sanctuary of the Lord God. Well, you don't arise unless you've first been on your knees. And so before a single beam goes up, before a single stone of foundation is laid, we pray. And we pray and we pray. The house of the Lord must be built on prayer. It must be built by pressing in. It must be built as we come before the Lord. Set your heart and soul to seek the Lord first. Then arise to the work ahead of you. Seek first His kingdom, Matthew 6.33, and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Seek first the Lord. And I believe at this point, if anyone says, well, what can I do to be involved in this? The very first thing the Lord is calling you and me to do is pray. Is to be on our knees. Lord, show us what you want. Be with us as we go forward. And may your name be glorified and praised through this process. We're going to have a day of prayer and fasting coming soon. We'll let you know. It makes sense to let you know, otherwise it'll just be me and a couple others. But we're going to have a day where we say this is the day of prayer and fasting, and we're going to culminate with worship on site, on, on the property out there. We'll meet together and we'll pray together and I'm looking forward to that and we probably will do that several times throughout this whole process. But keep this daily in prayer before the Lord. Keep our focus in the right place and even more than praying for the building and for construction, pray that God will continue to build this church spiritually and grow us up in our salvation and build in terms of souls and people who don't know Jesus. What would be awesome is a lot of times what happens in churches when they build is over a two to three year process, things pretty much shut down until that building is done. It becomes the entire focus. Here's what I'd love to see, what I know Jesus would love to see. I'd love to see this church double in attendance because people's lives are being saved because that's where the focus is. Because we're all about the gospel, not about the building. Let the building get built, it will. But let's pray and be about the business of the Lord first and foremost. Preparation, praise, peace, perseverance, people in prayer. Is the church crumbling? Far from it. In fact, the Bible tells us that the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is the one thing stemming the tide of evil in this world until Jesus comes. We are what Paul calls in 2 Thessalonians the restraining influence. Not by ourselves. The church and the Spirit together. The Spirit working through the church is stemming the tide of evil. That's why we're here. To hold back evil and to call out the name of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And so number seven, last thing to jot down. The house of the Lord gang must be intensely personal. It must be intensely personal. Verse 7, David said to Solomon, My son, I had intended to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God. I like the literal translation of that better. David said, As for me, it was in my heart to build a house for the Lord. This was personal to David. I think this was as personal as anything ever was in his life. The preparation, the love, the focus that David put into it for the Lord It was personal, and it must be personal to us. The house was in his heart. And again, this isn't about leaving a footprint or making our mark or our name on North Whidbey Island. It is about Jesus Christ, the Savior and lover of our souls. It's about saying, man, everything Jesus has done for me, I want to see done for others. And with that heart, we build. There's nothing more personal than that. What kind of house are you building for Jesus? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the guidance that you bring us in your word. 
So we thank you so much for the gentle whispering of your Holy Spirit that explains and applies and makes relevant your word to us. We pray, Father, that every step before us will be taken. In the same way David brought the ark into Jerusalem, every step we would pause and worship. Every step we would pause and pray. Every step, Father, we would lay what this church is doing before you. Father, we want to see this island radically changed. While there are those who would support and promote things that would only bring about death and darkness, Lord, we want to bring light and life to this area. We desire so much, Father, hearts to be changed by the love of Jesus. We're in this place, Father, because we know that love. We have experienced it. Jesus, you have brought us such incredible joy in our lives. And we only want this to be shared. So, Lord, would you have your way among us. Father, would you build as we pursue you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together. Worship team, you can come back up.